Welcome to Gestational Diabetes Club. I'm your host, Helena, dietitian, nutritionist, vegetable enthusiast, and big fan of strong coffee and dark chocolate. Join me here each week to chat about all things gestational diabetes. We'll cover everything you need to know about your nutrition, lifestyle, and all the messy bits in between so that you can feel empowered to optimize your blood sugar, grow a healthy baby, and create sustainable healthy habits to last a whole lifetime without the stress, overwhelm, guilt, or confusion. Thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you love it here. Welcome back to the Gestational Diabetes Club podcast. Today is a very special episode because we have a guest on, which we always love. I think these episodes are really good when we can interview somebody else who's got more expertise in a different area to me. So today we have the amazing Brenda, and she is a diabetes educator. And all of you, I'm sure, would see a diabetes educator during your gestational diabetes journey, but you might not be in fully familiar with what they actually do, what their role is, and what kinds of questions they can answer. And I see a whole lot of questions all the time on support groups and things like that, or questions that I get uh, to me, which would be better directed to a diabetes educator. And I'm sure it happens in reverse as well of people not really knowing the difference between our roles and things like that. So I really wanted to bring somebody on who can answer all of those questions um, and maybe give you some insights into things that you didn't know. And we can all learn a little bit more about what actually is involved in your diabetes education sessions and what they can help you with and all that kind of stuff. So Brenda is the person that we are going to ask all of the juicy questions. So I'm going to welcome Brenda and get you to introduce yourself. Tell me about, and everybody listening, who you are and what you do. Hi, thanks, Helena. Thanks for having me. So I'm Brenda. I'm a diabetes educator. So I'm actually a nurse. My background is nursing. And I did a postgraduate study or a postgraduate um, certificate in diabetes education. So, um, and then I'm also credentialed with the Australian Diabetes Educator Association. So to become credentialed, you have to do an extra thousand hours of diabetes, providing diabetes education, and then do some CPD points um, to get your credentialing status with the ADEA. So, um, and so just as a bit of a backstory as well as who can be a diabetes educator. So either a nurse, um, a dietitian, pharmacist, exercise physiologist, um, or podiatrist. So they're the people that can go on and do the studies to be a diabetes educator. Um, I work in a hospital and I also work in private practice. Amazing. And I'm just going to clarify on that point you just mentioned that that does not mean that your dietitian that is necessarily a diabetes educator. That doesn't mean like those people are automatically a diabetes educator. Like for example, I'm not, I'm just a dietitian. We would need to do further study to be able to do that role and use that title. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah. just to clarify that. So you're yeah. your own separate pr- profession, but you know, that's probably actually a really good place to start in terms of can you clarify what a diabetes educator actually is? Because it's not a role that we would ever really hear about unless you're in the diabetes world. So can you tell us like what you actually do? Yeah. What's your role at Compass? Yes. So I work with, oh, when you become a diabetes educator, you are helping people, I guess, navigate diabetes who have been diagnosed and that might be type 1 diabetes, type 2 diabetes, um, gestational diabetes and there's a couple of other types that we won't sort of go into too much here but they're the main three. Um, So helping people at diagnosis, um, so educating them about the condition, doing blood glucose monitoring, um, if they need to start on insulin, educating them about that. Diet and exercise, I mean, they do see a dietitian, but we also can help them with education around diet and 
exercise and lifestyle. Um, so I guess that's the main. And we also and can, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, what does that education involve? So what are you, what are you telling people about? Because I think people get confused. I certainly notice this in terms of clients that I'm working with when people will maybe think that they've seen a dietitian already, but they've seen a diabetes educator or they're asking me questions that would be better placed for their diabetes educator around like testing and how to go about that and insulin and things like that. And then there's some questions that would be even more placed for an endocrinologist who is the doctor who's specialized in hormonal function and blood sugar regulation as well, who would be on your team too. So I know there can be confusion and it is confusing because no one necessarily ever sits you down and explains the difference between these roles. So what what are the things that you are predominantly focusing on? Let's say someone's just been diagnosed with Mm -hmm. GD. Um, Like what are the things that you would be talking to them about? Yeah, so you would be explaining what the diagnosis actually means um, and you would be explaining to them how to do blood sugar monitoring, um, recording blood sugars in a record book, um, just it's like an and then you get your dietitian that would focus more on the nutrition side, um, and then it's just more around when you see a diabetes educator talking to them about what their condition actually is. Um, if they need to start insulin, you would be showing them how to do that. Um, talking to them about what insulin does in the body. Um, in my, like my background is more type one and I see a lot of type two. And there, a lot of the time I do see women who have had gestational diabetes and then gone on to develop type two. So, and it really depends on the person that you're seeing with diabetes and whether they, on any medication or whether they're just diet and lifestyle and exercise controlled. So it depends on the person who's being diagnosed with diabetes as to what you're actually educating them about. Does that answer your question? I think that does answer my question. And I suppose the way that I see it is that you're focused on more kind of the logistics around things and the overview explanation of like, okay, here's what's happening in your body and like logistically what we need to be actually doing day to day in terms of here's your testing kit, here's how you test your blood sugar, like yep. here's the times to test, here's what you need to write down. Um And again, like you said, if you're starting insulin, like here's insulin and because often like the the endocrinologist might only spend a shorter amount of time with you and then yeah. you would get set up with the diabetes educator to kind of actually go over what's going on and go over the endocrinologist recommendations and you know those appointments may go in either order because you can make recommendations into what the endocrinologist needs to know and what you would suggest to them and then vice versa the endocrinologist Definitely. could also feedback to you what they think yeah. the management plan should be and then I suppose like you would be the one like carrying out that management plan in terms of like here's the logistics of how to go about that and where someone might ask all their questions of like when do I take my insulin when do I test and yeah. how do I test and what do these numbers mean yeah and then I'll just jump in and say then your dietitian is me and that is like how do, so your diabetes educator and your endo might talk a little bit about food, but then the dietitian ideally should be on your team to really go into that in detail to give you a management plan as well. So kind of all cogs of the same system, but all yep. yeah. Well, we work as a team. Yep. So in your diabetes management team. You will have your endocrinologist, you'll have your diabetes educator, you'll have your dietitian. Um, you may need to see an exercise physiologist yeah. as well. Yes. yes, they are a really essential part of, especially if you've got other um, conditions that you need to be mindful of when you're doing exercise. So it's really a multidisciplinary team approach to managing diabetes. Um, and everyone plays a role, but we all 
sort of talk in between, you know, we all talk to each other and talk about um, the best management for the person with diabetes. Yes. Perfect. Perfect. And I think that's a good one just to get out of the way. And for the rest of this interview, I thought I would just base it around the amazing questions that a whole lot of listeners have sent in. So I put up a question box on my Instagram. So thank you so much if you did submit a question because it's so helpful to know what you actually do need to know about. And I've added in some of my own. So I think that we'll just make this a bit of a Q&A and yeah. I'm just going to fire them at you if that's okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. Sounds like a Amazing. Good, good, good. Okay. So let's, I'm just looking through them now. So let's start with, well, here's a good one to start off with. How do I lower my fasting blood sugar? And I know I've got an episode on this. So you have a whole episode on this. I do have a whole episode on this. But from your perspective, not the dietitian's perspective, how can we do that? I mean, fasting's a tricky because it's largely hormonal driven. So, but the things that I would be talking to people with fasting blood sugars is looking at how long have you been fasting? Like when was your dinner and have you fasted for too long? Um, because sometimes when you fast for too long, you can get that release of sugar from your liver, which will push up your glucose readings. Um, so looking at that and making sure that you're not fasting for too long. Also, things that you wouldn't kind of think about, like your sleep quality. If you've had a poor night's sleep, then that can contribute to insulin resistance, which can make your fasting level higher as well. Um, have you had enough water? Are you hydrated? Um, making sure that you're you know, drinking enough water is another one as well. Um, are you moving your body? Are you particularly, um, you know, exercising can help improve our insulin sensitivity? Um, stress is another one. So making sure that you are addressing stress management and pregnancy can be a really stressful time for a lot of reasons. Um, so really making sure that you are taking, I guess, time out to look after yourself and manage stress levels. Um, there was one more thing I was going to talk about as well. Exercise we've touched on. I think we're going to exercise, you know, that in itself is a, a separate question, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Is there anything else we want to add to fasting? You know, all I'm going to add is go back and listen to my episode on fasting blood sugar and it's right at the start. So scroll back um, and you can listen to that rather than talk about it too much here, I think. But I think that's great. That's a really good starting point for everybody. Um, Let's just go into exercise now. And if the other thing you were going to say comes back, it comes back. If it doesn't, we'll let it go. Okay. (laughs) But talk about, talk about exercise. So. How does that impact blood sugar? Yeah, so exercise is a really essential part of general health, but diabetes management. So exercise I think of as medicine because when you are exercising, it improves your blood sugar regulation. So doing cardio So like, say for example, you went for a walk, that is going to use the glucose that's in your blood at the time of doing the exercise. So after a meal, going for a 10 minute walk is a really good way to lower your blood sugar level. And then when you do resistance training, so the more uh, resistance training is like amazing for blood sugar regulation. So when you do strength training or resistance training, you are improving your insulin sensitivity for hours after you've done it. So for example, I work with a lot of people, my my background is mainly type one. So when, and I spend a lot of my time looking at continuous glucose monitor 
reports. So for everyone listening, continuous glucose monitoring is a little sensor that sits in your interstitial fluid, which means in your the fluid that sits around your cells, basically, in your fat cells. So when I'm looking at continuous glucose monitoring reports, I can see the effects of insulin, uh, the effects of resistance training. So the next day's report, when I'm looking at it, the blood sugars will be more stable. Um, because of that effect on insulin sensitivity that lasts, you know, up to, you know, 24 hours plus after you've done resistance training. It's so cool. And yeah. I, I love recommending that too. And just. If you are wondering what resistance training means, that is, like you said, strength training, doing weights, things like that, rather than like the more cardio-based stuff. Both are really good, but I totally agree with you that there's so many advantages to doing resistance training. And particularly because, especially when you're not pregnant and you can lift heavier, if you're actually changing your body composition Mm. a bit and you're getting more muscle tissue in your body, then that will also just help you metabolically too. So keep that in mind. But yeah. Exercise is phenomenal in terms of having those longer lasting effects. And again, I've got a whole episode on exercise where I've interviewed the beautiful cat. So we can scroll back and you can get a more in-depth um, explanation into how all of that works. But I think that's a great one to add in and another good reason that you should have a physio or an exercise physiologist ideally on your support team while you mm. go through your GD journey and postpartum as well. Yes. That's, we also really want to target the insulin resistance that might be underlying at that point. And I know that's where you do most of your focus. And I will also just clarify, I, sorry, we've just overlooked this, that the different types that Brenda's re- referring to, type one means when it is like the autoimmune condition where it's not really related to your lifestyle or necessarily even genetics sometimes. And that's the one where you have to take insulin because your pancreas just isn't producing any at all. And it's quite different to type 2 and gestational diabetes, which is what most of you will be dealing with. So just keep that in mind. But are you happy to move on? Anything else to add around exercise? I think as well when you're pregnant, I think there can be some fear around exercise and, you know, I used to hear that, you know, when you're pregnant, you shouldn't start any new exercise that you weren't doing before. You can only continue on with what you were doing prior to falling pregnant and that advice has now changed and so you can introduce new exercise into your routine even if you weren't doing it before you fell pregnant I think that's important to know because I think some people are afraid to do resistance training while they're pregnant or they're not sure what to do as well Mm -hmm. so I think it's um and I will just add in my pregnancies I've had two babies and I had hyperemesis in my pregnancies and I was very, very active before falling pregnant and especially first trimester, I really couldn't exercise at all. And then I had pretty severe pelvic girdle pain as well. So um, it's about, I think, you know, if you can, if you can exercise, do it. If you're suffering with any of those things, like... Just go easy on yourself because it can be a really hard time to actually do exercise. Absolutely. And that's when you need your support around you to really give you guidance on what the best things are for you to be focusing on at that time, because it's going to be completely individual in all circumstances. But when you're just like piling more and more things onto what already is such a stressful time when you're pregnant, then yeah, it just builds up, doesn't it? And so sometimes something's got to give and sometimes it's exercise, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes people need relief from that. So yeah, like lean on your support if that's yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. Or, and there's there's lots of um there's also lots of free kind of resources around exercise in pregnancy as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um and lots of stuff online too. Yes. 
So let's move into, I've wanted to ask some just sort of like logistical questions that come up a lot with people that I see. So what about in terms of actual like blood sugar testing, mm-hmm. when do we need to be testing? What are the best times to test? Yep. So you want to be testing your fasting. And so as soon as you wake up. Yeah. Um, so don't wait. Sometimes don't wait. Don't wait. Yes. As soon as you wake up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then two hours after eating. Okay. So I'm going to clarify. Is it at the start of your meal or the end of your meal that you start your two hours from, or does it not matter? I would say it's two hours from when you start eating. That is consistent with what I would recommend. So yeah. go with that. So go with the start of your meal. Cause it's just one of those questions that I know, you know, you might just think of after your appointment and be like, Ooh, what do I do here? And yeah. And similar, like, what about if it's a really long meal? Like, what if you're going out to a wedding, say, and it's quite prolonged over mm. entree, main, dessert, or you're going to be like at a long lunch or something like that? Like, how do you, yeah. or you're just a slow eater? How would you approach that? I would just say that's, you know, that's not the, a usual kind of circumstance. And for those things, I think, um, just doing it, you know, if you're at a wedding and you're constantly, it's a bit tricky because I would say try not to constantly graze all afternoon at a wedding, say, and just try and have your meal. And I would still do it two hours after you've started eating. But then keep in mind that it might be inaccurate because you might have only just finished eating half an hour ago, but you started two hours ago. So, I think your best, from my perspective, your best thing to do is really just communicate with your team when that's happening and that then just right. get an and individualized just, plan that's actually going to work. And yes, um, and you might, I don't know, if you're my client, <laughs> I'm kind of mean and sometimes I'll just say, well, can you test a few times so we can actually just <laughs> see what's going on? And I guess like a point that we both probably want to get across is that there's no magic thing about like, it being 120 minutes on the dot after you yeah. took your first bite and your meal being X amount of time and that kind of thing. Because I think sometimes people do get fixated on like that real like specificity, specificity about yeah. it, which just isn't really that relevant. And then, you know, you might be thinking like, it doesn't matter if I accidentally tested and it was two hours 15 or, oh my God, mm. it's only an hour and 45 minutes, but I had to run into a meeting so I couldn't test it exactly two hours. And like, do you think that that matters or is it a little bit arbitrary? I don't think that. I will say if you're on insulin though, if you've had, say you've had Nova Rapid and you've given yourself that. So with Nova Rapid, it takes about 15 minutes to start working. And then it's peak action time is between one and three hours. So I would say if you have given yourself insulin, that's going to be a little bit different. You probably do need to test two hours after you've given it. Um, but if it's just your diet and exercise controlled and you're just, it's a random, you're going to a wedding. I don't think that one kind of occasion like that is going to matter. And I don't think you have to be like, on the dot with your two-hour test. I think I want to get that across that, like, it can feel very arbitrary if you're worried that it's been oh, a couple of minutes late or a couple of minutes early. Yeah. Like, at the end of the day, we're actually just looking at trends. Trends, exactly. At, you know, exactly that point in time, exactly what was happening and whether it was, like, point one or point, I don't know, point one, like, above or below what your reading was because... It doesn't really matter if it's still mm. within range. Yeah. Um, you know, that can be different with your fasting. And maybe that's another good question for you. Often I'll get this question. My clients might text me and they'll say, I woke up randomly at this time. So I tested and I was this number and then I fell back asleep. And then I woke up again and I tested again and I was this number and one was over and one was under. What do I go by? Mm-hmm. What should I do? Or I, or another similar one might be, 
around the set. So that might be a couple of hours apart. I had someone come mm. to me with that one this week. But another common one might be like, I've tested at my usual wake up time of like, I know, six. But if I test at 6.05, again, one was over and one was under. So Hmm. what do I go with? What would you say to that person? And the thing is with, you can do like one test right after the other. The the same finger, the same, you know, you squeeze another drop of blood out. It's because the meters are not 100% accurate. They have like up to a 20% discrepancy I guess in the readings that you'll get I would say just do your one test and don't test again and just go with the first number that you got and if you wake up and you're going to go back to sleep well it depends I suppose what time you've woken up but say you've woken up at four in the morning and you decide oh I'll just check it now but that's not the time that you're going to get up I would just go back to sleep and don't test and get up like do your fasting test when you're going to get up for the day. Yeah. I think that's probably good advice. And again, like don't stress yourself out about it because hormones can be doing all sorts of things like overnight and in the morning. And especially if you've like randomly woken up and that's really not part of your circadian rhythm. And yes. That, that might put your body into a bit of shock, which might even just like spark things for your nose. Yeah. Yeah. Quite interesting how that might play out. Yeah. But don't, don't freak out. And I think what I, usually say as well is like okay well if they're quite different results just write them both down just tell your team and Hmm. they will do with it what they will because they're both relevant in some respect so both relevant with context um and that might give you some better insights as well yeah but i think it's um i do hear this a lot with blood glucose meters and them being different oh Um, yeah that's so they can be completely wild and that can be such a big frustration. So definitely. But I have a really good question. Like, why can you do, this was a question that got sent in actually. So why can you do two tests and get completely different readings? Like, so they might be similar, but what if they're really, really different? Like, what if you tested and you got 16 and then you tested again and it was like Ooh. seven? Why might that? Uh, that, I don't know, that's. That's a pretty wild discrepancy. I'm not sure. Like, yeah, I made it up. But <laughs> I don't think you would get that much of a discrepancy. But up to 20% is like a normal um, discrepancy in levels that you will see with blood glucose meters, which is really mm. frustrating. So frustrating. Yeah. And, and there's some other things. Sorry to jump in. I don't know if you're about to say these or not, but you cut me off if you were. Like even just washing your hands. I was going to say that. Yeah, I was going to say that because if you've got, if you've got something sweet on your finger, like if you've just had it touched a banana and then you've gone and checked your level, then yeah, that can absolutely impact it. So make, and you should make sure that you've got clean, dry hands. Make sure they're dry as well because if you've got residual water on your fingers, it'll dilute the number. Yeah, absolutely. So the reading. Clean hands for sure. And same thing, like if you get a, a number that just seems crazy, just yeah, wash your hands. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, does it matter if you wash your hands with sanitizer or with soap or alcohol? alcohol? I, I would do water and soap if you're going to do check your level because if you do sanitizer, then you can have residual. Yeah, residual, yeah. Yeah, so I wouldn't use sanitizer. I would just wash and dry hands. Now, one question, this is not one that you would be aware of, but someone once asked me, can the soap, if it's like a fruit soap, can that have sugar in it that stays on your hands and affect your reading? I would say no because you're going to wash that soap off that too yeah yeah cool good questions though yeah i know Ben. just like the silly ones you don't think about and yeah you know you mentioned insulin there and so i think we should move into insulin because there's quite a few questions that people generally have about it so first of all why would somebody be recommended metformin versus insulin like what's the difference yeah so metformin is an oral tablet and it works by uh, inhibiting the liver from releasing glucose overnight is one of the functions, you know, something that metformin will do. 
and improve your insulin sensitivity. Whereas when you're administering insulin, it is working as your insulin that your pancreas makes. It's working in that way. So they work in different ways with which one is going to be appropriate for you. That's something that your team will discuss with you. And they, you know, that's, it's a, a conversation that you have with your treating team and working out what the best action, you know, treatment plan is for you. Yeah. I think it's hard to answer that just like on a blanket level yeah, there. You need more information. It's a quite individual one. And yes. Your doctor is the one that will be actually prescribing any medication as well. Remember that. So it's like that endocrinologist on your team because Brenda and I can't prescribe things, right? I don't think. Can you prescribe things? No, no. Nurse practitioners can. I'm not a nurse practitioner, but uh, yeah, it's your doctor that's going to be prescribing. Yes. And so then we do more of the education around like how to actually utilize those medications and we might be able to provide advice, but... You know, for example, if we're working together, it's not my role to be able to advise you on what your insulin dose should be. I can certainly make recommendations that can be fed back to your doctor. And, you know, likewise, really, I think is that generally it would have to go through the doctor. So better question for them around your metformin and insulin and which one's going to be better for you, but your whole team can contribute to that conversation. And your diabetes educator will be able to um, titrate or change your insulin dose. Um, Yeah, okay. Yeah. And your recommendations around the dose. Yeah. 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 Um, Okay. So let's talk a little bit about insulin. So how does it work? You mentioned a bit about Nova Rapid and that it, like, what those time frames are. Yeah, time. Yeah. Maybe just even repeat that and give a explanation of what Nova Rapid is and yeah, sure. what the commonly prescribed insulins are in GD. Yeah. So Nova Rapid is a short-acting insulin. The name, it sounds like it works straight away. You think Nova Rapid, you give it mm. and it just, and I, I, I actually get this all the time where um, people give it and then eat start eating straight away. But Nova Rapid takes 15 minutes to even start working in the body. And then the job of Nova Rapid is to, when you eat carbohydrates, they're broken down into glucose. Fat and protein will be broken down and affect your blood glucose levels as well, but to a lesser extent. So your insulin is a key that opens up your cell door so that the glucose from your bloodstream can get into the cell where it's needed. So we do need some glucose in our blood, um, but it's regulated and it needs to go into the cell so it can be used for energy. So that's the role of insulin is to get the glucose from your blood into the cell. I'm going to jump in with a common question. Is the insulin that you get prescribed the same as the one in your body? It's obviously it's not human insulin. So no, it doesn't work as fast or, and the other thing is your body's own insulin will, um, switch on and off based on what your blood glucose levels are. So, and it works with other hormones like glucagon is another hormone that will tell your body to stop making insulin. So when we have given injected insulin, it doesn't work in exactly the same way in terms of the timing, I guess, that it it does the same thing as in it moves the sugar from your blood and into your cells, but it doesn't work in exactly the same way. Good answer, I think, because yes, it's essentially the same thing, but You've got to be mindful that, like you're saying, and we'll come back to this, that Nova Rapid has, you know, time of onset. And same with other types of insulin that might be more commonly prescribed in GD as well. So, yeah, keep going with your explanation around the different type. Um, so you need to give Nova Rapid, and obviously this is going to be provided to you by your diabetes educator. 
Yeah. Um, when you are starting on insulin, you will get a very detailed explanation of this from your treating team. Um, just to throw that in there that you will get this education when you're starting on insulin, but Novarapid is given with meals and then your long acting insulin will be given and you don't have to eat with your long acting insulin either. So that's given at the same time of the day. Um, usually at nighttime it will be given. And yeah. So, and that's because we've, we're always, our body's always making insulin. So, um, after we eat, we will make more insulin to move that sugar into the blood, uh, from the bloodstream into the cell. And then in between meals, your body is still making insulin as well. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And so it's it's just kind of replacing that background insulin when you do take it overnight. So it doesn't have the same kind of, like you're saying, around Nova Rapid that mm. not everyone will have Nova Rapid. Not everyone no. will have insulin in general anyway. No. And Nova Rapid is generally given if you're having spikes after your meals. And yep. one that is often protophane, but a more yep. long-acting one will be given in the evening if you're yep. struggling with your fasting levels predominantly yeah. and, and that kind of replaces yeah. your background or what we call your basal blood sugar where your body is usually just naturally producing it. So that's what that's doing. And like you said, you don't take it with the meal because there's no spike in that insulin's mechanism of action, I guess. Yeah, it's not covering. It's offset. Yeah, it's not for the food that you're eating and yeah. for your background. And yeah, it will be given for Fasting levels, yes. Fasting levels are high, but your post meal levels are okay. Yeah, you might start on some long acting. Um, but yeah, good hot tip. If you're on Nova Rapid, you need to take it before your meals. It's around 15, 20 minutes. Take it beforehand so that you get the insulin working at the same time that it needs to be transporting the glucose that you're eating. Okay, so that you get both working like in tandem together. Um. But yeah, so that's what insulin is. Um, hang on, what's the next question? Here's another good one. How many high readings can you have before you might be prescribed insulin? Oh, and now this is going to be also your treating team is going to make this decision. Um, but we are looking for trends. So uh, it may, like a one-off reading might not be an issue. But if it's happening sort of two or three times in, in a week, then that might be when they want to start some medication. And yeah. I will say as well, if you've got a once-off high reading, there's other things you can do to try and minimize that before you jump to insulin as well or medication. Yeah. Absolutely. And as well, like in that, interim period too I kind of want to reassure people like you might think differently but would you say that like if you're in that period where you've been diagnosed and you haven't yet seen anybody like mm-hmm. yourself or like a dietitian um and you're getting high readings would you jump straight to wanting to put somebody on insulin in that scenario I think it would depend it would depend on what the blood sugars are and it would depend yeah um and once again, this is going to be a decision that's made by your your GM yeah. team. But I think when you're diagnosed with GDM, you will see someone fairly quickly or you should. And I would say as well, like just to reassure you that, no, if your blood sugar is like going over but it doesn't seem like it's skyrocketing, like that's a different scenario where you might be like, well, obvious that you're like this is probably not going to be manageable without insulin. So we may as well get cracking on it for the safety above but a lot of the time if no if there's been no opportunity to make any modifications you've only just started testing you haven't managed to have any education yet and work on any strategies then like you it just wouldn't really be that reasonable to say well Mm -hmm. we need to immediately start insulin because um yeah yeah because of those readings when we can implement some first line lifestyle sort of yeah so diet modification and lifestyle is going to be first line treatment yeah before jumping to medications yeah Um, okay 
Is there an oral form of insulin instead of taking a knee? (laughs) No, unfortunately there isn't. I will say though, the needles are four millimeters long, maybe six. It depends on what you're, what you're using, but generally they're, they're so tiny. And I would say if you're needing to start on insulin and you're in with a diabetes educator and you're really, really nervous about giving yourself an injection, I would say to, if they don't offer to do that bit first, so to get it out of the way so that they can, because when you're thinking about something and you're scared of something and you're not really going to be taking in information because you're just terrified of this needle. But generally what I hear is that injections don't hurt. And I've, I I don't have diabetes. I don't have type 1 or type 2. Um, but I have injected myself with a, a needle just to see what it feels like so that I can better describe to someone if they say, does this hurt? I'll say, no, it doesn't hurt. It just, it feels, yeah, the finger pricks actually probably hurt more. I was about to say, I've never, I've never used an insulin needle myself. Um, I would be that person. Like, I hate needles not happening, but I've often heard that the finger pricks are worse than the actual insulin injection. So yeah, it might be a bit scary at first, but most people are cool with it. Yes. Um, and yeah, I know we're talking a lot about insulin. Not everyone will need insulin. No. To reassure no. you, like not everyone needs it. Yeah. And there's no shame if you do need it. I guess I also wanted to open the conversation to normalize it that, okay, if you're on insulin, lots of people are. Um, yeah. it doesn't mean you've done diabetes worse than anybody else or yeah. better, like your diet controlled, anything like that. Yeah. Um, another logistical question sometimes mm-hmm. I get asked. What if you've forgotten to take your insulin or mm. you're, you know, going to have a later night than usual, like maybe you're going out for dinner, normally you're at home, and so you're going to be going to bed a bit later. Yeah. Um, or what, yeah, what do you do if you have forgotten to take it um, and you remember a couple of hours later or yeah. you know, if you forgot in general? So if it's your long acting and you remember within two yeah, hours. I guess most, this is more directed. I was directing it about longer, long acting. Yeah. yeah. So it's with it is if it's within two hours, you can take it. Yeah. Um, I would say don't freak out if you forget it one time. Um, you might just need to be a bit mindful of what your readings are the next day and yeah, just take it again the next night. Um, and you may want to touch base with your team and just let them know that you've forgotten. I would say just, yeah, do like if you've forgotten and completely there's nothing really you can do about that. So just write down what your rating is the next morning and make a note that you forgot your insulin and yeah. don't make a habit of it. But yeah, it's a good, yeah. good one to keep in mind if that's like you would say within two hours, if you remember again to keep, yeah, to take it anyway. Um, and again, that's another question as well. Like, how important is it for that to be on the dot at the same time every night? Or is there leeway for it to be like 15 minutes around about that time kind of thing? Yeah, no, it's within two hours. So I will say, can we just go back to that? Because yeah, of course. If you, say if you get home at, so you're long acting, you normally have at nine o'clock. Say yeah. if you get home at midnight and you haven't taken it and you remember then, you can still give it at midnight. But the next day, you need to give it at two hours before midnight, so 10 o'clock. So taper it back. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, cool. That's a good one to know as well. Yeah. Um, Okay. And we've covered that. So another question that came through. I've just been told I need to start insulin. Will this increase my chance of being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes in the future as opposed to if I had gestational diabetes without insulin? Mm -hmm. I would say this is dependent on a lot of factors, not just whether you've taken insulin with gestational diabetes. It's going to be more of an overall picture. Do you have a strong family history? Um, do you have other risk factors? Um, do you have PCOS? Um, I would say it's more of an overall picture rather than just needing insulin during your gestational diabetes. 
Sorry. Sorry, go on. Yeah, I, I would say there's probably a slight increased risk, but once again, it's you need more information than just needing to take insulin because a lot of it is pregnancy hormone related. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think particularly around Nova Rapid, if you're taking it with meals, like, but it's probably not the actual insulin itself increasing your risk of getting type two, but rather, like you said, that all those contextual factors around mm-hmm. well, what's underlying that meant that you've needed more insulin than somebody else. And that might just be because all bodies are different, but it might also be that, um, you have more underlying insulin resistance, some of those factors yeah. that contribute to that. Yeah. That maybe your diet has looked different, no judgment, just for whatever reason, you might have, you know, different circumstances where you haven't been able to modify your diet or you don't want to or anything like that. Or, yep. you know, so then a raft of reasons, but probably not just actually the isolated insulin. Yeah. Just the other factors alongside that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I just repeated exactly what you said, but just rehammering that point home. That yeah, you, it's multifaceted. Not- it's scary thing. Yeah, and I think you know, with your risk of type two developing later in life, we do know that, and there's some conflicting information about what the actual chances are. But 30, 30 to fifty percent of women who have had gestational diabetes will go on to develop type two within 10 to 20 years. So it's really considerable amount. And I would say that, you know, gestational diabetes is probably an indication that you are more at risk of type 2 diabetes because of that insulin resistance. Yeah, for sure. It's like this big warning sign, really, that pops up because your body's under so much pressure when you're pregnant. Yeah, it's like a test. Yeah, exactly. It gives you that little like alarm bell. I just like to look at it in a positive light and say like, yeah, we know that it's flagged you and now you know knowledge is power. You know what you can work on down the track and you can keep up all the positive changes that you do during gestational diabetes, post-pregnancy. Yeah. Improve your whole life. Yes. And reduce your risk. Yeah, yeah. And your baby's risk. And your child's risk as well. So, and yeah. And this leads into some questions. Um, a lot of people are really interested in that postpartum period. So, yeah. What can you expect with your blood sugar postpartum? Is there an immediate or a gradual change in what goes on there? Yeah. So, once your placenta has been delivered, because your placental hormones are causing a lot of the insulin resistance. Um, so you should see, and in this is context dependent on a lot of things, but you know, usually you will see your blood sugars return to normal pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But then it is really, really important to get your oral glucose tolerance test six weeks after delivery. Yeah, for sure. I can't stress this enough. Do I mention it every single episode and every single Q and A? Maybe. Get your six-week follow-up oral glucose tolerance yeah. test. I know you all hate the drink and you don't want to do it. But actually, some people are doing it. I, I know most of you hate doing it or hated doing it, but just go do it because you just need that information. Everyone, yeah. is, everyone on your team also needs that information to know what's going on properly with your blood sugar. Yeah. So go do it. Don't be scared. Put your pride at the door as well if it's a pride thing and just go get it over and done with. Yeah. Someone's asked. A similar question. I feel like they mean around blood sugar testing, maybe, and not the glucose tolerance test. But post-pregnancy is regular. Is the regular blood test the same as doing the glucose test moving forward? It's a little bit about ambiguous. Yeah, let's just answer that two prong. Like, is it the same oral glucose to- tolerance test? Yeah, that well, six-week follow-up, mm. and is it the same blood sugar testing with a meter that you need to be doing so yes it's the same oral glucose tolerance test that you will have had during pregnancy so that's the test that you get not sure about the testing bit with the blood sugar meter but i guess if if it was with them you wouldn't 
be testing with a blood sugar meter if you had your blood sugar checked post-birth? No. And then going forward from there. Yeah. I think maybe that's what this person means. Like, yeah. Sorry to railroad, but I think maybe they mean like after you've had your baby and if they've checked your sugar again in hospital and things, like you said, can pretty quickly go straight back to normal. So then they wouldn't usually recommend that you need to continue testing four times yeah. a day. Yeah. Is that- and and your ranges are going to change like when you're pregnant when the because the glucose levels are it's a tighter range when Bob is inside because you know we're exposing them to the higher glucose levels. So when you're pregnant we're more worried about higher levels than when you're after you're pregnant, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there is a different reference range. I think that's a really good one for people to know because you also might have family members and things like that with type 2 diabetes who have different numbers to you when you yeah. are going through gestational diabetes. So don't get confused about that. But like it's a unique time where blood sugars are at a different um, level. So then things will go back to being a little bit different pregnancy yeah. as well. Yeah, so don't freak out. Um, and if you are somebody, I guess for that previous question, if you are somebody with underlying insulin resistance who may well then have like high blood sugar readings again on their follow up or glucose tolerance test, then their blood sugar continues like being quite high. Would mm-hmm. that be immediate or sorry? Would that be like um, post birth? that you'd immediately see those higher blood sugar numbers or would that be a gradual change as well? My question there made sense at all. Really jumbled that. Yeah, no, I think I know what you mean. So sometimes it can be, if we've picked up gestational diabetes, it can actually be type 2 diabetes. And in which case, if it is type 2 diabetes, you would see still elevated readings after delivery. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And and so that would be, would they still be similar readings to what you'd be getting during pregnancy? Yeah, I would say so. Yes. Yeah. And your team would probably direct you around whether you need to continue testing then, I would imagine. Yeah. And whether you can just stop doing it or whether you do need to continue or not based yes. on what's going on after you've actually given birth. Yes. Yeah. Um, but look, I reckon, I think that that's pretty much all of the questions that came through. Somebody has also asked, and I love this question, why should women who have had gestational diabetes work with a dietitian slash diabetes educator to stay off medications and the benefits of this? Yeah, so I think that it's really important to get support with this because as we've mentioned it is you do have a high risk of developing type 2 and I think it's important to work with people who are going to educate you on making sustainable changes and continue those changes you know for your whole life I think it's a great opportunity to actually work with people that can help you to do that Um, in terms of staying off medication you know, if you have to, I, I don't want to say that it's a bad thing to use medication, but if you do use insulin in particular, that might change how your labor and birth may go. Um, so I suppose, does that kind of answer it? Yeah, that's a good answer to the question. I think I always like to be reassuring and say, yeah, there is, again, there's no shame in needing medications and everybody is so different, whether that be what's actually going on internally in your body, so whether that is, you know, dependent on having underlying resistance and things like that, or like I've said before, whether that's circumstantial and that there's all these other sort of contextual factors that might be contributing. So everyone's different as to whether they actually need medication and I don't think that you're better at gestational diabetes like I said if you don't need medication and there are certainly some of those benefits I agree with you in terms of your birth plan maybe being more within your control if you're not on medications 
Um, and also maybe a design that you're going to be in, I don't know, a, a less vulnerable to developing type 2 diabetes down mm. the track. But again, there's just a lot of our answers here have been like, oh, it just depends because yeah, everything absolutely. is just so individual and dependent. I wouldn't say everyone's at the same level of risk of those things happening down the track, like diabetes and other chronic conditions associated with it. Yeah. But that's maybe not necessarily tied to whether you used medication or not. Hard to say. In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. So we don't really know. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah. I think it's just about making sustainable changes. And sometimes I've heard that people say, you know, it was the best thing that I was diagnosed with gestational diabetes. It taught me, you know, about nutrition and about how my body works in terms of processing food and, you know, making changes during pregnancy. I think the tricky thing is when you're pregnant, it's all about your baby. So you're more motivated to keep up these changes. And then when your baby arrives, it can be easy to slip into Mm -hmm. old patterns and habits again. And what I sometimes hear from people is, I wish that I had of, you know, I wish I had have kept up with the changes that I made during pregnancy because it's a couple of years down the track. I had fallen into bad habits again and now I've actually got pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes. So, yeah. I, gosh, I completely agree with you and you've made me realize I just went on a completely like tangential answer before as well because I think that I totally agree in terms of like, yes, it's okay if you need medication, but please see this as an opportunity to make such positive lifestyle changes to put yourself up at that lower risk of things happening down the track and not even just in terms of those diseases, but also just feeling really good within yourself. Yep. And yes, like, yeah. Which I will say as a mother, it just helps you to deal with the challenges that come with being a mum. If you are looking after yourself and you are, you know, exercise for me is such a stress release or like, you know, I, it's a stress management tool that I use. And if I don't exercise, I just feel it in my body and I feel it in my, you know, being able to cope with the challenges of two little, little children. And sometimes I think as well, what can happen is if you don't have those stress management tools, you can sometimes rely on food. Absolutely. And, you and know, I, sorry, go. I was going to say, and or wine, like, you know, yeah. wanting to, wanting to use that to, um, deal with stress. Completely. And super common. I have to say, like, as well as working with a lot of women with gestational diabetes, I work with a lot of women who are even in their like forties and fifties and yeah. maybe late thirties who, in a position where they've had kids and things like that. And then they're looking in the mirror, like, I don't really recognize myself. I don't feel like myself in my body. I don't have self-confidence. My nutrition is just all over the place. And it's hard to fit it in with my kids and my busy job and my wife at home and everything. And, you know, then there is like the comfort eating and all that sort of stuff. I don't really like to call it comfort eating. I just call it non-hungry eating. Yes, that's what it is. Relationship with food and things yeah. like that. And I just think we have this golden opportunity for you to actually mm. know what's going on internally with your body and to make some of those changes that can mm. stop you getting into that position because I don't exactly. want you to wind up at that point down the track, being like, God, I wish I'd just started earlier and not let things spiral to this point. So you're at this pivotal time. You're A lot of you are about to start your family where, as you said, things just get chaotic, especially when you've got a newborn in the house. Or like You probably don't even have time to be cooking meals and things like that. Mm-hmm. But if you can nip some of this in the bud so that mm-hmm. you just continue with the healthy habits that you want to have for life and not end up as the person who's like, I just don't feel like me and I don't feel confident and I just this is impacting everything now because I've put it to the side for so long let's not get there let's start right now and that's why the you know the perfect reason to be making sure you do get referrals to those people like the dietitian like the physio like the exercise physiologist and really making use of your diabetes educator as well so that you can set those foundations and set yourself up 
set your yeah set yourself up for lies. Yeah, I think we're both definitely. on the same page about that. Yeah, because I see in my private clinic, they're the women that I see that are now at that point where they've actually developed type two, and you know another kind of myth is that you know it only happens to people who are really overweight, and that's just not what I see. Yeah, I absolutely. It's related to so many other things, right? Like. Yeah, you don't have to look a certain way to have no, diabetes really don't. of any type. No, and you know most of the women that I see in terms of, you, you know, usually they've made some really great nutritional changes, but it's more um, the exercise as well. A lot of them are doing walking, which is great, but it's not enough to get that really awesome benefit in terms of improving your insulin sensitivity totally we need to be addressing a whole lot of things and you know what i think that it would be really perfect to get you on again to talk more about that postpartum space yeah. and type 2 diabetes and yeah things around prevention of risk and pre-diabetes and all around that yeah. sort of stuff today i really wanted to focus on gestational diabetes but I think we can definitely do a part two and cover more of that and we can get some more questions as well from the listeners. I think it would be a really good one. But I know yeah. we've been chit-chatting for a while. Chit-chatting, so. we have. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that that's actually kind of a nice way to end things, like knowing that you have this opportunity right now to make some really amazing changes. So please take it. See this as a beautiful silver lining of your diagnosis. But thank you, Brenda. Like, I think you've been amazing. And is there anything else, like any any other little nugget of wisdom that you feel like you need to drop in here? I just, as I previously mentioned, I'm going to bring my own personal experience into this. When you are a mum, I think it's so important to look after yourself. And it's really counterintuitive because you kind of, for whatever reason, you just get this thing in your head that you have to look after and care for everyone else. But you need to look after yourself in order to look after everyone else because you're no good to anyone if you're not, you know, putting yourself first. And that's, as I said, it's counterintuitive because you're like, I'm a mum. I have to do everything for everyone and put everyone's needs above mine. But honestly, putting your own oxygen mask on first that's my little golden nugget of wisdom in it comes to motherhood is you have to put yourself first and be that role model to your kids as well like my kids you know I'm pretty busy I don't really have time to get to a gym and do like a complicated workout routine I do it in my lounge room with some YouTube workouts and my kids see me and I was taking them to CrossFit for a little while as well, which is awesome because they see me exercising and then they want to do it too. So it doesn't, your movement, the movement side of it doesn't have to be complicated. You don't have to go anywhere. You can do it at home. It's great to get them involved. I love that so much. Um, I think that's a beautiful note to end on that put your own oxygen mask on first. You have to look after you to look after other people. And you want to show up as your best self for Absolutely. You know, the people yeah. around you and really give them, like I said, the best version of you and be the best person that you can, the best mum, the best wife if you are one, the best partner, the best colleague, yeah. the best friend. And you can only do that if you're looking after yourself and yeah. really making sure that you have all of these foundations in place. So what a beautiful note to end on. And I really hope that you all enjoyed listening to this one. I think we've been so lucky to have Brenda answer all of these questions with me. And I feel like it was a really nice collaborative Q&A. So thank you so much, Brenda. Thanks for Um, having me. Absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, if you have enjoyed this episode, I would really appreciate it if you rate the podcast, leave a review, come and DM me however you want to go about it. But it does actually really, really help when you 
like just do the five-star review if you think it's worth five stars um, or leave a review because then it helps promote this podcast to other people who might get benefit from it as well. So think about people like yourself in your situation when you've first been diagnosed and you have nowhere to go, you feel like you just need info, then if you do the work of like rating and reviewing this show, it helps get this out to those women as well. So keep that in mind. And I always forget to remind you, but I do have a free download now. So you can, if you've just been diagnosed, go onto my Instagram profile. I'll put the link in my show notes as well, but go to at nutrition.by.helena. While you're there, enjoy all my content around gestational diabetes, but you can head to the link in my bio and I have a free download and it's literally called, I've just been diagnosed with GD, now what? And it just sort of steps you through the whole process because I want you to read that and feel a bit more empowered and confident and reassured that you know what the process is. You know what's happening in your gestational diabetes journey and you have at least somewhere to start. So go grab that and then you'll be added to my email list as well. So I like to send some fun emails every now and again. But yeah, go go get it. Otherwise, I always forget to tell you to do that and follow me at nutrition.by.helena. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. Let's leave it there and I will chat to you all again soon. That is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And if you haven't already, please make sure that you subscribe or hit the plus button so that you can get new episodes delivered straight to your podcast app every week. And if you did find this episode useful, I would appreciate it so, so much if you could leave a rating and review or share it with a friend. It helps me reach more people so that I can help them take some of the stress out of gestational diabetes too. And if you want to keep learning about all things gestational diabetes, head to my website to find all the ways that I can support you. Thanks so much. Chat soon. Bye.